listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps aspiring professionals in film get where they're going faster by dissecting the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives in the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. My name is Kaylee Bailey. I've been working in film for about seven years now since I graduated college, which has been a lot longer time (laughs) since I graduated than I realized. But um, I typically edit within film. I started out as an assistant director. I did the normal thing that you do out of college, which is kind of like PA and work your way up. And so I ended up second, second ADing, and then second ADing, and then firsting, and then kind of realizing that the AD career path is um, too logistical and not creative enough for me. So I kind of switched tracks and started editing thanks to some friends that really believed in me. And so I've been editing for maybe the past four years. Um, so that's my main concentration. I like to say that editing is my day job, but directing is what I want to do. Um, I think like most most film people that are first starting out kind of have an amalgamation of things that they do. So it would be like writing, editing, directing, the trifecta, and those are three things that I try to focus on. Awesome. That's fantastic. So uh, if you're ready, we'll just hop right in. Okay. You good? Yeah. All right. So what is the biggest challenge you've overcome so far, uh, either as an editor or as uh, a first or second AD, you can choose. And uh, how did you overcome it? Um, I would say it's it's probably similar a similar answer for both of those um, careers is that just finding work as a freelancer and like just breaking into the industry can be really hard. Um, just because if, if you come out of college or you decide that film is what you want to do, just breaking into the industry can be really difficult. Um, so I would say... Um, Yeah, just breaking in and making the contacts and finding people that are going to give you your first job is Mm -hmm. really hard. And I think it all comes down to networking and the connections that you have. Um, And as far as, you know, writing or directing goes, I think that the hardest thing to do as a writer is to just sit down and face a blank page. And that's that's difficult. And then as a director is just getting your act together and just directing something. I think just the initial push past the blockage is difficult when you're first starting. How did you overcome it? Those, those sort of issues. I think it's something that you just consistently have to do is just to decide that you're going to do it. Even if it's, even if it sucks. So for, I find that a lot of people in film tend to be really perfectionistic and also really, just really careful and really prideful with their work because it's part of your heart that you're putting into your work. It's not like, you're just going to a job and putting in your nine to five. It's like you put yourself into the work that you do. And one of the greatest fears I find with people is that you'd hate to go all in and try your very hardest and fail. Um, so people kind of like pull back a little bit because they want to say, Oh, I didn't give it a hundred percent and failed. You know, I only gave it 80% and failed. So, you know, I'd, I'd be able to do well if I gave a hundred percent, but it's too risky. Um, 
but as far as like pushing past and just doing it, I, I don't think that there's really any motivation. You just have to decide that you're going to write or you just have to decide that you're going to direct something. It's just really the discipline of, of just doing it. Yeah, absolutely. And so piggybacking on that question, what would you say is your biggest challenge right now? Rebranding. Um, I think I, yeah, so I've done it once already and that was hard. Um, so I was an assistant director for a couple years and was pretty good at it. And so people to this day will still call me for assistant directing gigs and having to turn those down and say, no, you know, like I'm, I'm committed to being a creative, so I'm going to be an editor. Um, so now switching from editing to directing, that's difficult as well. It's a difficult jump to make because now everybody in my circles, everybody in my network knows me as an editor and those are the jobs that I get past. So again, it's kind of like building up your portfolio or your reel or redesigning your website in such a way that people say like, Oh, you're a director and getting, getting a couple really good pieces under your reel so that you can then start bidding on jobs or getting clients and stuff like that. So I find that just, yeah, just doing the rebranding is hard. It's, it's like being a company that used to, you know, make a certain product and now they decided that they're just going to jump over and make a different product you basically just have to redesign the way that you market yourself and that can be hard. Right. No, I could not identify with you more on that because Bonsai is going through this process as we speak where we have to sort of retrain our clients mm-hmm. and future clients to uh, have a different type of conversation when they talk about us. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also true in real life. Like the way the human brain works, we want to categorize things mm-hmm. and, when you change your categorization in someone else's mind, that can be troublesome for that person, right? Yeah. Um, and then it can be troublesome for you if you've done a bad job with brand early on and you're trying right. to make a change in your life. Um, right. Just ask anyone who's been an addict at 20 but is totally clean and successful at 40. Mm. <laughs> if people that knew him at 20 are still like, yeah, he's he's great right now. but right. But back when he was twenty, <laughs> yeah, and that's all, and that's all that they know you as for sure. Right, right. So yeah, yeah, great, great insight right there. Um, so, so sort of piggybacking on on this idea of the challenge of rebranding and every experience you've had out of college so far, and, and, and all the sets and things you've worked on. You know, what are the two best pieces of advice you've received so far in your career, and and who did they come from? Hmm. Tough question. I think an overall, overall advice that any director is going to give any other young director or editor or writer, whatever, but especially directing and writing is if you want to direct, there's no way to direct except to direct. Mm -hmm. And the, the same goes for writing as well. Like, you know, people want the best advice or the best, um, you know, the best thing to kind of kick them in the pants to get going with the director, you're hoping there's going to be some key or some magic or some, some, yeah, some piece of advice that's going to like push you out the door. But really the only way to get to where you want to go is to do the thing that you want to do. And I've heard that over and over and over again from directors. If you want to direct, then you just have to direct. And, um, so I'd say that that's one and that's kind of like a, a no brainer type thing, but it's true. Um, 
let's see, what's, what's something else? Something recently, and I think that this applies to where I am now, it's hard to give like an overarching best pieces of advice in my career because I think that advice kind of pertains to different matters within film. But I met up with a friend of a friend who's a character artist at Pixar, and his name is Bill Zahn, great guy, super talented. But he, I sat down with him and he said, be careful what your day job is because it'll become your career. And that kind of struck me at this point in my journey that I was like, oh, you're right. Like, if I'm not careful, editing will become the thing that I do forever. And which is fine. Editing is wonderful and I love it. And I think it's super important part of the creative process. And I'm super proud when I get to put out a really good piece. But it's not what I ultimately want to end up doing. And so him saying that is kind of a, you know, again, if you're not careful, then you'll just do what you've always done and maybe never get to do what you feel like you want to do. So wow. that's, that's super poignant. Yeah. I, 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 I like both of those a lot. And uh, I come from a writing background and people will ask me, how do I become a writer? I'll say, well, you just need to write every day. Mm-hmm. And that's all. And then, uh, so what you find out is people's real question is how do I become famous? Mm-hmm. Which is a different question, right? All together. Or maybe, totally. or maybe the real question is, how do I become rich and famous? Mm. Um, again, totally different question. So very, very well, good stuff. One thing that I often say, and this is like a third piece of advice that I find when I'm writing or sitting down to write that's has been really useful. Aaron Sorkin has a master class on screenwriting, which I highly recommend. But within that class, he kind of went on a spiel and basically said, like, if you're a sculptor, and you kind of equate writing to sculpting, you don't even have a marble slab until you have your first draft. So once you have your first draft, that's your marble slab that you start chipping away at to make something. And so I was like, oh, yeah, you're so right, because the blank page is not a marble slab. Your first draft is what you chip away at. And so kind of taking away the pressure of, like, the blank page is the slab. It's not your first draft. Just get your first draft and then start chipping away at it from there. I I felt like has somehow made it easier to write because it just helps you get through it a lot faster to me. Yeah. I think that's a great advice too. It's this idea of get something on the page. Even if it's mm-hmm. bad, you still wrote five bad pages instead of zero right. pages. Right. So yeah. yeah, very, very good stuff. Um, so going from you being the one getting the advice and applying it to your own career, what advice would you give an editor or writer or director today? Um, I'd say like never underestimate the importance of a good attitude. Mm. Um, most people think that, or not most people, I don't actually know, but in general, I'd say a lot of people would and say like, you have to be the most talented or you have to be the most driven or you have to be the most this, this, and this. But really like people just want, to work with someone that they like. And so, you know, if you have a bad personality, then, you know, you should maybe focus on fixing that because most of the jobs that I've gotten have come because just because people liked me because they were like, they hadn't seen any of my work. They hadn't seen any of my demo reels or anything that I'd done. They were just like, I mean, you're great as a person. I would love to work with you and just gave me kind of like a blank check because I was 
pleasant and hardworking and smiled a lot and complimentary and just overall like a kind person. And I think that that's part of a skill set that's really important. <laughs> that's yeah. something that I think is discounted because again, if you're if you're an editor that's going to be working with a director, then the director needs to like you. Or, you know, even if you're an assistant director, I'm not the most talented assistant director out there, but I'm pleasant to work with. And so people hire me again. So that's something like, just don't underestimate like positivity because that'll take you a whole lot farther than talent will, honestly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's such, it's such an overlooked thing. And I think it's one of these things that that are really easy to say. And really hard to execute because if you have mm-hmm. a shit personality, there's a good chance yep. you don't know you do. Yeah, so, that's and, true. And so how do you change it? Um, and I can tell you that um, being in writer's rooms early uh, in song writing, uh, you learn to check your ego at the door, which mm. which makes which makes you sort of amenable to advice and collaboration and mm. humility and, yeah. you know, all those things go such a long way in terms of, hey, I'd work with them again versus, you know, being the difficult genius. You can only afford right. to be the difficult genius after you're a superstar uh, right. or, or you've had so many successes. But but early on, you need to get in those rooms. And um, likability, in my experience, has always trumped talent. Mm-hmm. Um, unless, sure. unless it's in those rare situations where the talent is the reason you're there, like your name. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Yeah. Um, so as much as we give advice and, and we're good enough to take advice, not everybody, I just kind of mentioned like, not everybody's good at that. So not everybody will take the advice you give them. So mm-hmm. what, what are the, what are the biggest creative and business mistakes you see newcomers making? Um, Let me think for a second. I would say some of that part of it is financial, like not putting, not determining what your time is worth and Mm. not sticking to that. And that was something that took me a really, really long time to hammer down. Like how much is my day rate? How much is my hourly rate? How much like, is this job worth my time? And I think when you're first starting out, it's easy to just take whatever is given to you and just kind of, you know, yeah, 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 I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. And not saying, is this project even worth the time that it's going to take me to do? And I think, you know, just kind of determining what your day rate is and what your hourly rate is so that when people ask you, you know, I get asked what my day and hourly rate is all the time. And I think it's really easy to be kind of sheepish, like, oh, yeah, you know, it's this amount of money and I hope that's not too much. But it's like, no, that's what it's worth. Like I went to college. I'm certified and avid. Like I did all these things that makes me worth that amount of time. And when you value yourself too little, people don't value you enough. You know, like I've been surprised at the number of times that I've said this is my day rate and people go, oh, okay, well, all right, we'll, we'll pay you for that. And because they say like, you obviously value yourself really high, so you must be really good. So we want to hire you even more, you know? Right. Um, so, you know, and there's always like the negotiation kind of thing, but I think, and I don't know if this is like a female specific thing, but I find that like negotiating rates can be 
difficult because you don't want to ask for too much and you, you know, you want to skirt around the issue and be like, Oh yeah, you know, like this much is fine. Um, instead of just being like really factual and upfront about how much you're getting paid, because it's not a shameful thing to be like, you know, when somebody presents you with a project to be like, okay, well, how much are you paying me? And just be very direct and upfront about negotiation and like what your time and, and, uh, talent is worth. I think that you should determine that really, you know, starting out. That's super solid advice. Um, and I think that the, the reason it's so hard to negotiate up front, um, a lot of times is that you put yourself in a negotiating position to lose because you mm. really need the job and, right. and you forget that they don't know that. So, mm. so you'll, you'll take their first offer cause you really need it. Right. And, and right. if we could remember as creatives, you might be their only option. You might be the only person they're looking at. So get what you're worth and don't have cognitive dissonance after mm. you've taken the job. Um, creatively, on the creative side, is there anything you see mistakes being made? Um, being too in love with your work um, and not being open to it being imperfect. And I don't know if that's just my personality type. I don't know if you or anybody listening knows anything about the Enneagram. It's kind of a personality uh, test, kind of like a Myers-Briggs type deal. But um, my personality on that is a perfectionist and a reformer. And so, but I find that like film and creatives tend to kind of be really perfectionistic and just really in love with their work. Mm. And I think it's really important to be very open to criticism and also to not let that criticism destroy you. Um, and then beyond that, to be okay with not being able to see what you have in your head on the screen just yet. So I was talking to, um, Alex Kendrick of the Kendrick brothers. They do a lot of, um, Christian films and right. stuff and they're family friends of mine. And so I was talking to Alex and he was like, you know, in the beginning, I would say that, like the first movie that we did was like a $20,000 budget movie and about 30% of what I saw in my head made it onto the screen. And the <laughs> next movie, it was kind of like 45% of what I had in my head up until like his fifth film. He was like, I would say that it's about 70% of what I had in my head. Not necessarily like, you know, the first 70% of the movie was in, was what I had in my head, but just in general, like content acting, you know, just what you envision isn't always going to end up on the screen. And so I think that you kind of have to surrender the need for that to be absolutely perfect. And I'm kind of preaching to the choir here because I, <laughs> I'm really, really bad at that. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, and it inhibits me. It keeps me from creating because I'm so tied to what I have in my head. And right. I think that knowing when to make that creative sacrifice to say, you know what, like, this is going to be on people's social media feeds for like 24 hours and then it's going to be gone and it'll live on my website. And like, it's okay that it's not perfect. And then the goal is that, you know, three months from now you look back at that piece and you say, Oh, I've come so much farther than I was then, you know, that you can look back on every subsequent thing that you did and kind of be like, wow, like I've grown so much since then. So again, yeah. just don't, don't be too in love with your work that you're not willing to say it's going to be imperfect. We're going to make it anyway. Yeah. I think that's wonderful. 
And uh, this one's always fun. I love asking these questions because we get such unique responses. But uh, if you had one month to see, to uh, teach someone how to be a competent editor, what would the be the sort of first three things you would teach? So you have one month. They they have to mm-hmm. like work on a big project. They need to be competent. It needs to be good. What are what are those three things you teach them? Oh, that's hard. Um, well, I think editing is is really different from either writing or directing because you have to know the tool really well. Um, and directing, yeah, you have a skill set, and writing, yes, you have like a tool that you use, say if you do like final draft or whatever, you have Mm -hmm. to kind of know that, but you, you know, it doesn't take that long to open that program, start typing, you know, just like a director, you don't have to know like a specific program or a specific set of tools, you know, you just have to kind of do it. But with editing, you really need to know, like you really need to know what you're working with. So, um, I work on premiere Mm-hmm. The first movie I, I did was in Avid, and I haven't worked on Avid since then. Why is um, that? Why did you make the switch from Avid to Premiere? If I could just have a, an aside, sorry. No, it's fine. Uh, because nobody uses Avid. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, if you're, if you're working in kind of freelance world or client-based, like, I mean, Premiere is just cheaper in general. And, you know, you can pay 50 bucks a month and get the entire Creative Cloud suite, and that's what people do. And so... Um, generally I think that in Los Angeles, there are still pockets of people that still use Avid and still like have Avid as a requirement, like even Pixar, like that's what they use to cut on. And that's like one of their, um, requirements is that you're proficient in Avid. And so it's not like nobody uses it anymore, but in general, most people, when Final Cut came out with Final Cut 10, most people made the switch and said, forget Final Cut 7, like, forget Final Cut 10, we're not switching over to that, and then switched over to Premiere because they're really similar operating systems. Mm-hmm. So um, so I generally use Premiere, and with that said, like, um, training an editor, I would say you need to spend, like, the first week just watching tutorials on the system itself and figuring out the best shortcuts and the hotkeys, I think hotkeys and learning how to be really, really proficient and customizing your keyboard Mm -hmm. to like exactly how you want it to be like the fastest that you can be is super important. And it's, it's so surprising to me sometimes, like I'll work with editor with other editors and kind of watch them over their shoulder as they're making cuts. And it takes everything in me to not be like, um, you know that there's like a hotkey for that, right? Like you don't have to, you don't have to do in point out point control delete and ripple trim. Like there's literally one button you can press for that. And so it's, it's just becoming really proficient at premiere final cut 10 gross. I hate final cut 10, but, um, just learning your system. And I would say just dive really quick into, every tutorial that you can really find just to make your workflow really fast and like learning how to be organized with folders and bins. Like one of the worst things and one of the things I hate the most is when somebody wants me to take over a project and they just hand me a file and it's completely unorganized. Like graphics are not in one folder. Music is all over the place. Footage isn't organized. Sequences are everywhere. It's like, 
the most one of the most important things that you can do is come up with an organizational system and just stick to that because it's it'll just save you a whole lot of time and trouble if you know where everything is. So anyways, that being said, I think that's one of the most important things because if you understand that tool, then you know you cut a lot a lot faster. Um, what would be the the second thing? So you you have them spend a week doing tutorials on mm-hmm. the tool, and then mm-hmm. I guess the second thing you said would be to set up your organizational system and your keyboard and your hotkeys. I'm sorry. So what would be the third thing? Um, I guess well, you kind of get into creative stuff. It depends on like what you're cutting because you know, cutting doesn't necessarily translate from one medium to the next. Like cutting narrative is completely different than cutting a promotional video, which is completely different than cutting a trailer, which is totally different than cutting a documentary. Mm. And it's like, it depends on what you're cutting. And I think, you know, most editors can do any of those things, but I would say I generally have a really good pace and grasp on narrative but not as much of a good grasp on like cool sizzle highlight reels of cars driving down the road, you know, like, so there are some editors that like, that's all they do is these 30 minute incredible like sizzle reels of like concerts or whatever. And they look awesome. And I'm like, how did you make that? (laughs) And that's, you know, that's not necessarily my focus. Like I want to tell a story. Um, so if we're talking about narrative cutting, um, then one of the things that I would say is to just really get familiar with all the takes, like go through and watch all of them. So if I like handed somebody a scene and you had, you know, five shots and five takes per scene, like generally the best takes are going to be the last two and probably the last one is the best one because that's when they got it and moved on. Um, But watch all the takes for the pieces because sometimes actors will give a better performance in the first one than they do in the last one, but the director liked the timing of this one better than that one. So Mm. it's just kind of, you really need to go through and figure out what the pieces are, but also you need to start knowing with knowing what the scene is about, like what's it trying to accomplish because you as an editor are the final rewrite. And so, yeah, so you kind of, and this is why I initially loved editing is because you're kind of like the silent edit like you're the silent writer like you influence so much like you can make or break an actor's performance really and the first movie I ever cut um Tatiana Ali who was in Fresh Prince like she came up to me found out that I was going to be the editor and was like okay um just so you know our performances are in your hands and we trust you and that was kind of like oh okay like yeah you're right because I could insert a pause in the wrong spot that makes her look like she's flubbing her line and she's not she's just waiting for her line you know she's just waiting to deliver her line or you know you can cut something really snappy to make the conversation look like it's happening really fast but in reality they've messed up their lines a bunch of times you know yeah so you really make or break an actor's performance and there's a lot of performance that goes into being that, that an editor has control over. And so just remembering like what the character is trying to accomplish, what the scene is trying to accomplish, and then 
going from there and choosing takes based on that. Um, but a general piece of advice, I know this bit is going on long. I could talk about that all the time, but, um, <laughs> no, go ahead. You've got all the time in the world, uh, but in general, um, a mistake that I see a lot of like young editors or movies that you'd be like, God, this movie is so bad is doing, um, back and forth dialogue. So if you were in a two shot or sorry, not a two shot, if you were, you know, had a conversation of people across the table talking to each other and, um, like a lot of times young editors will just, you just see who's talking and they just cut between who's talking. So it's like that person talks, okay, cut to them. And now that person talks, cut to them. And then it's kind of just back and forth ping pong. And that's not, you know, you generally want to stay away from that. Naturally, right. it sometimes happens, but sometimes it's okay to not see the person that's talking. And in general, more often than not, your audience is interested in the response to that. You know, if somebody asks a really important or deeper probing question, you want to see it in that person's face as the question is being asked or, you know, so there's so much more than just a ping pong back and forth dialogue. And I mean, I think it's also personal preference and based on whatever the scene is, but I generally like to just let things play out longer in like a wide shot or a two shot or whatever, just to like let the actors perform. And that's kind of a directing call as well. Um, but again, I think it's, it's easy when you have a lot of options and you have a lot of angles to just feel like you need to cut to everything and like right. just cut all, cut all the time and you don't have to. And so, um, I mean, you see, let it, let it breathe. Yeah. Just let it breathe. And you don't have to cut just because you have a bunch of angles, you know, you got those for safety, but you don't have to, you don't have to cut them if the scene plays out great within one angle, you know? So, um, so yeah. So anyway, that's just kind of in general. No, it's great. If somebody, yeah. If somebody's like trying to learn to be proficient, get to know your system, customize your keyboard, figure out what the goal of the scene is or like what you're trying to accomplish before you actually jump into the edit. Mm -hmm. And then just kind of, I would say that I'm a little bit more of an instinctual editor and most people are, but you just, it's the same kind of thing. Just go with your gut when you're making a cut. If you feel like that's the right moment to cut to a reaction shot or whatever, nine times out of 10, like, you're watching that kind of as an audience member going, okay, I'd want to see this person react to that. And working with um, a director that has similar taste as you is also really helpful. So the one director that I work with often, he and I, he and I have the same instincts as far as cutting go. And most of the time, most of the time when I'm working with, um, with directors or with clients or whatever, most of the time, whenever I've gone against what my gut instinct is, because I think it's what they would want, they usually tell me to do what my gut was telling me to do. Right, right. And so just first pass, just go with whatever you want to do and like what your gut is telling you as far as the cut goes. And if they don't like it, then yeah, you can make that change. But most of the time they're going to, you know, if you change what you wanted, then they're going to tell you to change it back. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, because I think there's a creative part of, of all of us that, that that's what makes us unique is that we have this gut instinct uh, about how it should turn out. And that's mm-hmm. why you have to listen to that to that voice. But speaking of uh, us, us creatives, by the way, 
Which uh, creatives do you most admire and want to emulate? And what do they do from a technical or skill standpoint that makes their work stand apart? Oh, um, well, I think, I mean, my favorite director, and I feel like it sounds so cheesy to say it, but my favorite director is Steven Spielberg. And, you know, everybody, you know, would rave about Steven Spielberg, but I just love how, I love how he does wonders and how he lets a scene play out that, I mean, he's obviously working with the most talented actors like on the planet. So it's easy to just let things play out when, when characters are cast really well. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, he's the master at wonders and blocking and, you know, and you know, everything. So I love watching anything that he does because it's so seamless and so fluid and everything is just, it's just thought out so well. And he leaves a lot of room for everything to breathe and to get into the scene. And yeah, I just, his level of experience and mastery with blocking is just incredible. So, and I also just like his movies because they're generally really fun or adventurous or they are meaningful or, you know, so I just love his style as a director. Um, see writing wise. Hmm. Favorite writer. That is hard. Um, Again, also kind of a cheesy canned response is Andrew Stanton, and mm-hmm. he does a lot of Pixar films. And I feel like if you're going to study story, watch every Pixar film ever made, <laughs> except right. except Good Dinosaur and Cars 2 and 3. You can skip those. But <laughs> otherwise, I feel like Pixar just has the story arc and hit all the beats and all that stuff. Like I feel like they are absolute masters at story. Even if you're like, Oh, animation is for kids. It's like, mm, have you seen Coco? You'll cry like a baby. And that's what everyone um, tells me about Coco. Oh my gosh. You have to see it. It's so good. Um, finding Nemo is probably like in my top 10, like all time favorite movies. And mm. Andrew Stanton wrote that. Um, so anyway, writing wise, Andrew Stanton, Andrew Stanton also wrote and directed my favorite two uh, Stranger Things episodes as well. So um, I love Andrew Stanton as a writer, director. Mm-hmm. Um, Anyone else or, or, is, or is that, the, um, are those the superlatives? I feel like those are the superlatives. You can get into like nitpicky yeah. from there on out, but those no, are in general. It's perfectly fine. I don't know where the time has gone, but we are already upon our last couple of questions. So All right. um, what does making it mean to you? I think if I was able to make a living directing, that would be making it for me. It doesn't necessarily have to be, I'm directing big movies or Pixar movies or the next star Wars, even though I would love to be the first female director of a star Wars movie. It's like, to me, even if I never got to that level, if I was able to live and say, I make a living doing what I want to be doing, then that's success to me, regardless of what level I'm doing that at. Um, I would consider myself extremely blessed. Um, And I would say even now to be able to be a creative and edit for a living is, is probably a much greater existence than most people 
dream of because I'm doing something that I really enjoy and I make money doing it. And so many people, you know, go to a job that they hate to be able to live a life that they like. And so, um, yeah, of course I would want to be really successful and do big projects and stuff, but I was able to make a living doing something that I enjoy. I, I'd find that, um, I would define that as making it. Perfect. And last but not least, certainly in your opinion, what are the top three online resources for helping, um, creative? So it can be writing, Hmm. directing, editing, whatever you want to go with. Um, I would probably point to masterclass. Uh, you can get a, like, I think you can subscribe to masterclass for like $180 a year and have access to like all of their courses. And Aaron Sorkin has one. Um, Robert De Niro has one. Um, there's just a lot. Helen Mirren has one. Like there's a lot of really good classes on there, um, that I think are, are super, super valuable. Aaron Sorkin's being like one of, one of my highly, most highly recommended things that a writer can do is to take that class. Um, if you're like, just like a starting out filmmaker and you want to, you know, you just want to learn, you want to do things and you want to do them quickly or, you know, and you don't know where to start. Um, there's a YouTube channel called film riot that a couple of my friends work at and it's extremely helpful and super cool. They just give you like all kind of nifty little tips and tricks. And, um, again, it's, it's for super beginners that people that maybe don't really know the ins and outs of film or they haven't worked on movies or, you know, things like that. But in general, that's a really good DIY resource. Um, and then, these aren't online, but I, you know, I guess with the age of the internet, they could be online as PDF. So I guess it'll count, but books that I would recommend because I'm a big, big reader, um, just in general for any type of creative, the war of art is probably one of my favorite books. Yeah, and it's fantastic. I mean, it'll just read your mail. Like I, I teared <laughs> up a, a couple times. It's like this book knows me. Um, so, and it's really quick, really short, um, war of art. Pixar has a book, um, Ed Catmull wrote creativity Inc, which is kind of the culture of Pixar, how they cultivated that. And also just how to manage people really well in such a way that they're motivated to work for you. And I think that that's a super great book. I'd highly recommend that, um, for screenwriters. I'm sure you're familiar with this, uh, save the cat. Mm -hmm. I think it's, that's a really, you know, it's kind of like a basic handbook for any starting out writer. Most writers have read that at least once. Um, a book that I read recently on writing was a hundred reasons your screenplay sucks. And it's actually, it sounds really detrimental, but it's so, so good because it gives you a lot of practical tips on like how to cut down your word count and the proper formatting of things and stuff that stuff that you, you wouldn't really think about, but kind of things that would point you out as a rookie, um, against others, um, just even verbiage and, uh, order, like order of like action lines and dialogue. And, you know, it's just, it's super interesting, super informative. If you want something that's kind of less, um, theoretical in nature, like war of art is very like high concept kind of thing, but save the cat and a hundred reasons your screenplay sucks are just really, really practical, like 
this is how to make your script better. Um, and then for editing, I think any editor, most editors, I would say, have read In the Blink of an Eye by Walter Murch. And that's kind of a, it's a book I read in, in college and I still read. Um, so, yeah, so those aren't online, but those are like top book resources that I think those um, are, would yeah. be helpful. No, that's an incredible feedback. So, uh, I mean, I think that uh, just adding that will just bring a different level of resource to the creatives that that we reach out to. So, um, tell us where we can find you on the internets and uh, <laughs> online and <laughs> um, on social media. Uh, my social media, my Instagram handle is where is Kaylee Bailey. You'll find that I travel a decent amount. So I do landscape photography as a hobby. So my Instagram looks way cooler than my life really is. Um, so where's Kaylee Bailey? I also occasionally post film stuff on there, um, which is, you know, part of the rebranding struggle. Um, and then I'm currently updating my website, but that'll be done in a couple days. So, uh, KayleeBailey.com is where I'll have like all of my reel and portfolio and stuff. That is perfect. Well, Kaylee, you've been awesome. This has been so informative and so fun. Um, hopefully we'll get to talk and hang soon. Uh, but in the meantime, take care and have a wonderful afternoon. Yeah. Thanks so much, Chris. All right. Talk soon. Be good. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find more information on this week's creative, including links to their projects, social media, and transcripts of this interview, please visit our website at www.bonsai.film forward slash podcast. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and on Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. And of course, If you're looking to take a big step toward your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on Show Me How to schedule a free discovery meeting and needs assessment. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.